My name is Pastor Kyle. Uh, I serve as a pastor of Community Life here. And this morning, we are working through the Beatitudes, and we come to the last uh, three verses of the Beatitudes. And um, so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up your Bible to Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. And um, kids, if you hear anything uh, that encourages you, you are allowed to scream and to go nuts. Um, just kidding. <clears throat> um, we're coming to the end of the Beatitudes, and as we've, as we've seen, if this is your first time here, we talked about how the Beatitudes are really the character and the portrait of a Christian, because it is the character and portrait of who Jesus is. That these uh, eight Beatitudes are, are not eight different types of people that enter the kingdom, but these are, this is the character, and this is a portrait of just anybody who is in the kingdom, anybody who's a Christian, that these Character qualities will represent a Christian, and that God, in time, through sanctification, will massage these into our life, that he is going to make us more into the image of who Jesus is, and that we can see who that is by looking at these Beatitudes. But then we come to verses, uh, as we close, verses 10, 11, and 12, and it is surprising that the natural outcome of this, these kind of character qualities is not, as Bonhoeffer said, recognition, but rejection. That persecution for the Christian is part and parcel to following and to walking with Jesus. And it's shocking to some degree that we look and we would say that the natural qualities of of being meek, of being a peacemaker, of being pure in heart, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, um, for mourning our sin, for being merciful, is not recognition, but rejection. And I want us to look at, at, at why that is, and yet, even though that that is true, that we have ample reason to rejoice in this life when it comes. And it is startling. Even one commentator, Matthew Henry, said, Jesus said it twice because it is so astonishing that this is the natural outcome for a Christian. So we're going to ask why that is, and what that looks like, and why we can rejoice in the midst of incredible persecution And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Matthew 5, 10 through 11, or 10, 11, and 12, 10 through 12. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, uh, that God, you uh, walked before us. And God, there has never been someone who has been so persecuted as you. And so God... Uh, the life that you call Christians to live, God, you walked it and walked it worst. And so, God, we can look to you, not just as our Savior, but that we can look to the character and the life that you lived, that it was, uh, it experienced incredible opposition, but, God, that you uh, made a way through your cross for us to know you. And so, God, we rejoice and we're thankful for that. And that one day, God, we will be with you in heaven. God, we know, um, as Jordan mentioned, that God, there is nothing by, circ- by just happenstance, God, that everyone who is in here is here for a reason. So, God, if there are 
are those who are incredibly um, undergoing Im- incredible opposition, uh, persecution, or if they are need to be comforted, God, would you comfort them? But if God, if there are those who are reliant on their own works, reliant on their own efforts to merit a right standing before you to be acceptable, God, would you show them Jesus? God, would you show that the righteousness uh, by faith in you that can be given to them? And so, God, would they trust in you? And God, we ask that you would continue to speak through me. God, that Holy Spirit, you would uh, encourage all of us this morning. Would you encourage the children that are here? God, would you lead even some of them to faith in you? And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look at good, someone once said that good theology is making distinctions, making precise distinctions. And so I, that's what I want to do. We're going to look at what it doesn't say and then what it does say. What, 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 what being persecuted for righteousness sake doesn't mean, and then what it does mean. That's, that's going to be a helpful outline uh, as I speak. And so there are, the reality is, is it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted, period. End of sentence. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it begs the question, what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness sake? The reality is, is that there are many good causes that people can be a part of and incur much opposition for, whether that be uh, helping out uh, with humanitarian aid, helping the poor. There are incredible uh, causes in the world that we can be a part of. But if it is not for Jesus' kingdom, and if it is not acting like Jesus and being his feet and hands here, then it is not for righteousness' sake. Um. There are many good causes, as I, as I just said, but the question is, is, is it for Christ's sake? Is it for Christ's sake? But the sad truth, I want, I want to make something clear. The sad truth is there are, there are many Christians in this life who are persecuted, not because they are too Christian, because they are, too, they are so unlike Christ. And that is a helpful understanding that uh, there are many Christians who, in an attempt to uh, wrongly in, in their methods attempt to love people are rejected uh, they assume it can only mean that I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake and the sad truth is that that is not always true it may allow them to sleep a little bit better at night it is not always true and what I mean is is if we are Christians and we are in, in, incurring opposition uh, re- refusing to listen to us yet we are critical we are judgmental we are mean, we are angry, we do not smell, as Paul says, the, like the aroma of Christ, then it is not persecution for righteousness' sake. Um, it reminds me of, there's a, I'm not going to mention his name, but some of you may know, especially if you're a college student, but there are many, there's a famous evangelist that will come onto a college campus, and his way of engaging people is by yelling at them and yelling obscenities yelling horrible things that I won't mention. And I remember that was really new when, we, when I came to IU uh, working for a college ministry. And so I asked some of them, why do you do this? Why, why, why is this your mes- methodology? And I'll never forget one, one of the things that he, one of the people for those ministries said. He said, people need to know the law and we are not afraid of persecution. Friends, that's not persecution for righteousness sake. 
That's a poor methodology in ministry philosophy. And so the reality is, is that the world will never hear a piousness that is coupled with judgment, overcriticalness, over mean, angry. And in fact, I don't think the church should really uh, employ that either. The gospel, if we are saved by grace, it's good for us to know that the gospel makes us more loving, not less. It makes us more gracious, not less. It makes us more patient with people, not less. And so it's good for us to understand that if we are, we are incurring relational breakdown with people, yet we are angry or overbearing or have simply bad personalities, it's not persecution for righteousness' sake. It also, it, it, it is a, it's an important thing that it also doesn't say that we must enjoy persecution. We, we, don't, we know that persecution is painful, but we know that persecution must come and does come for Christians. And so the foundational reason someone is persecuted is because they sound like, they smell like, and they look like a lot like Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, he says this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to other a fragrance from life to life. So that there is a reality of the world will reject Christians who look and act like Jesus because it will smell horrible to them. They will not like it. There will be a holiness about Christians' lives that they cannot tolerate and do not want to tolerate, and that we should not be surprised. And what's interesting, though, is that persecution has a way of encouraging and giving great joy to the Christian. It can give, God can minister to Christians who are undergoing incredible persecution in ways that are supernatural. Samuel Rutherford, who was a Puritan pastor, said that persecution for a Christian can work to a Christian soul like a wing to a bird or a sail to a ship. And isn't that true of the Christian church throughout history and in general, that when you turn the heat up, the Christian church does not die. It multiplies. There was one story, I'm listening to a book called The Insanity of God, and it's just about a, a pair of missionaries who go throughout persecuted countries and their stories of engaging with Christians there. And there was one story of a persecuted pastor named Stoyan in what is now modern Ukraine, and he was imprisoned for 10 years for being a pastor, was beaten and starved. Horrible things happened to him. But before he was moved to a gulag, which is just a labor camp, he got to meet his family for just one hour. Most prisoners would die. A third of them would die at this gulag, but he got to meet his family. And his wife wanted to encourage him, and so she knew the one thing that would encourage him was his New Testament, smuggling that in, giving that to him, and being able to hide it. But one of the USSR guards saw it and immediately beelined it for him, took the New Testament out of his hand, threw it on the ground, and said, started to berate his whole family in front of everybody. And he said, woman, don't you know that it's your God and this book? That is the reason you are in prison. I could kill your husband, I could kill you, and I could kill your 13-year-old son. And yet she looked him right in the eye and said, you're right, you have authority to kill my husband and me and my son, but there is nothing that you can do that separates us from the love of God in Christ. There is something supernatural that God works into the believer's life who incurs incredible opposition and persecution. So what does it say 
What is righteousness? This word righteous is actually the same word Jesus used that Paul will, will, literally, will, will literally use. Um, diaco- I don't even want to say it. Uh, forgive me. I'm not even going to try and say it. Uh, I'm just going to sound ridiculous. But it's the same word, um, righteous. It means a state of, accept, of, of being acceptable before God. And so what does righteousness look like then? And the beautiful thing is that it's in the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, mourning for they shall be comforted. Meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Merciful, so not only acting on those who have physical or economical needs, but also forgiving those who have betrayed you. Pure in heart, peacemaking. This is what it means to, to be righteous. It's found in the verses. Verses. But not only does it found in the Beatitudes, it's actually all over the New Testament. In John 15, 20, Jesus says this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Second Timothy, what Paul says to Timothy right before he is martyred as well, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews 4.15, which was written to the persecuted church. He says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Friends, that's a great encouragement that we have a high priest who is not aloof to pain and suffering, who doesn't understand what it means to be persecuted, but who lived the most persecuted life and went before you. It doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say in Luke 9, Take up, our, take up our comfort, take up the easy life, and pursue our dreams. It says take up our cross and deny ourselves. Denial of self is at the very heart of walking with Jesus. Listen to this passage that 1 Peter says. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that interesting that Christians have the ability to rejoice even when they are going through the fieriest, the the hottest trial? Isn't that amazing? Think it not strange. It's not strange. So when you and I incur incredible opposition to our faith, when people reject us, gossip about us at work, don't give promotions to us at work because we are Christians or because we don't laugh at the same things or do the same things or won't compromise convictions, don't think it's strange. Paul says that to root this in the Old Testament, he's talking about Hagar and Sarah, but he says this, Galatians 4.29, but just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What's he saying? It was back then, it's now as well. We should not think it strange or surprising when persecution comes. And if the preceding seven verses are marks of a Christian, then persecution is a mark of a Christian just like meekness is, just like being pure in heart is, just like peacemaking is. These are indicators of a life that Christ is in, that the Holy Spirit dwells in. 
And so we should not be surprised when persecution comes. And so I ask us, have you ever been persecuted for your faith? Not asking, have you ever lost your job? Have you ever been beaten? Have you ever been starved? I want to talk a little bit about that here in a minute. But have you incurred opposition to your faith? It will come if it hasn't come, if we are in Christ. And so lastly, I want to give a great encouragement towards not being afraid of persecution. Also not looking for persecution. This isn't a call to go out and to yell at people or to act in sinful ways. Persecution is going to come. You don't need to look for it. There will be ample room and and ample uh, opportunities for it to come. But do we shy away? And I want to encourage us not to. I also want to acknowledge something that may be in your mind because it was in my mind as I was studying this. We live in a country that has, as we're celebrating today, an enormous amount of freedom. We have an enormous amount of freedom to speak, to practice religion, and that's that's a great thing. We also know that there are many Christians around the world who are, in fact, beaten, who are, in fact, martyred, who are, in fact, suffering for the sake of Christ. And there is so much to learn from them, so much to learn about faith, about perseverance, about trusting in God. But what does that mean for our life? What does that mean for us who live in the United States here in Bloomington? If we are not being, if we are not undergoing certain persecution like that, are we going? Are we incurring? persecution? We are. And what I want us to do is to think more broadly about persecution with a broader broader spectrum. Because persecution in this life, especially here, most often I would say is mundane and civilized, but it is difficult. I want us to help us to think about maybe what, what does persecution, what it might look like for you. Literally that word persecution, the word he uses, it It literally means to pursue or to be chased after. In the CEB translation, it means to be blessed are those who are harassed. And so there is a reality that Jesus even says it. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There is a reality that people in persecution in this life will look a lot like what people say about us and to us. Gossip slander, making you feel incredibly dumb for being a Christian. Why won't you do this? Why won't you drink this? Why don't you fudge the numbers like this? And then social ostracizement because we don't do that? That is what persecution may look like for you. It may look like the son or daughter who becomes a Christian, and yet their parents think they're crazy for having joined some crazy cult or club. It may look like the spouse who becomes a Christian and now who wants to walk after God and read their Bible and talk to their spouse about Christ, but they want nothing to do do with it and they could care less and make fun of their spouse for being a Christian. There are a thousand different kinds of scenarios that it may take root in, but it will come like that. I remember when I was in college, my story is that I became a Christian in college. I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. But soccer was a big part of my life, and I played soccer in college, um, it was nowhere big, uh, <laughs> played for a Division II team. Have any of you ever watched Division II? On, on? No, you haven't. No, you have no idea. Um, you, if you have watched it, it's probably on ESPN 8, the Ocho, or something like that. <laughs> it's a dodgeball reference. Um, <clears throat> but I remember I became a Christian, I went down to a summer project, and I was growing in my faith, and 
And I had a real dream and vision to walk with Jesus on the soccer team. And I came back and I found it incredibly difficult. I was out of my element. It was hard to find time with other Christians. And I wasn't just having a hard time making disciples on the soccer team. I was having just a hard time walking with Jesus. And so I remember I prayed about it and I said, I think I need to step away from my soccer team simply to just walk with Jesus. I'm too young of a Christian to try and have kind of an impact. There was a heavy drug culture on our soccer team and I found it incredibly daunting. And I go into my soccer coach's office and I say, coach, I really thank you for everything you did from scholarship to just being a friend, but I need to step away from the soccer team because my faith is more important. And he looked at me and he said, you're gonna give that up for some myth? Don't you know that Christianity is a myth? I think you're really undergoing some stress here. You just need to take a day off. And I said, no, uh, this is serious. I'm a Christian, and that takes precedent far above soccer. I I really thank you, but I'm not going to be on the team anymore. He said, I'll see you at practice today. And I said, I'm not going to be there. And I walked out, and then he proceeded to call my parents and told them that I had joined a cult. And then he proceeded to tell tell my friends on the soccer team that I am mentally unwell. Now, that's just a small thing, but what have some of you incurred? at your job, with your families, and yet Paul, and yet Peter, and yet Jesus, and yet all of the New Testament and the Old Testament says, think it not strange, friends. Think it not strange. Now, I want to say something. The tragedy, because we would think it as a tragedy. These are, we're just Christians. We know the truth, and we want to make the truth known to people because Jesus really loves a lost and dying world, and he is the only hope. But friends, that's not the tragedy. The tragedy is not that persecution happens to Christians. It's that persecution happens so little to Christians. It happens so little in our lives. Why is that? John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones both make this point, that the tragedy is that it happens so little in our lives. I thought of three. One would be cowardice. We really don't open our mouth about our faith. With our, with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers. It's difficult, right? We get so excited. We can get so excited about a soccer team like I do or so excited about uh, uh, the NFL or so excited about something that we are so passionate about. When it comes to Jesus, we all of a sudden, cat has our tongue. I know I'm guilty of that. I don't know if you can resonate with that. But the reality is that a faith that is hidden is really no faith at all. Jesus gave us a commission not an option. In Matthew 28, 18, he says, make disciples of the entire world, teaching them, baptizing them. Friends, the gospel comes into our life and it calls us to care about people because we have a gospel lens on our life that people aren't just people who annoy us or who aren't Christian, but that they're people made in the image of God that God loves and that will spend eternity somewhere. The second is that we are not in proximity to non-Christians. Maybe we golf with Christians, we garden with Christians, we go on walks with only Christians. And people in ministry can be guilty of this. We only minister to Christians. We eat with Christians, we socialize with Christians, and we only have Christians into our homes. Friends, we have to ask ourselves, are we in proximity to people who do not share the same faith? We should be. Christ calls us to. A lack of mission isn't so much about our gifting or not being available or not being an elite Christian because that's not what it means to be on mission. Um, There is training. There are things that can be very helpful on understanding on how to be on mission. 
But a lack of mission is more symptomatic of us not spending time with and seeing the beauty of who Jesus is, primarily. I want to quote Bonhoeffer again. He says this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies, and at the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is, it is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be in the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. O oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? Friends, this is a call for us to think intentionally about our faith and to be okay when there is opposition. The last would be the church has become so much like the world. I'm not talking about a specific church. I'm talking about the general church. Um, when I was on IU's campus working for a college ministry, I realized one thing. I, real, I realized a lot of things. But there was one thing that was most uh, pronounced when I would engage with people who were not Christians or who even were Christians. And it's this. People don't care what you believe, right? You can be, if you're a Hindu, be a Hindu, go to temple. If you're a Muslim, go to mosque. If you're Jewish, go to temple. If you love JC, go to church, do your little Bible study thing. It's great. Just don't tell me that I'm wrong. Just don't say how I'm living is sinful. But other than that, people don't care. And there is, a, there is a reality that the church, we have a hard time, or we can have a hard time in the past, of wanting to look just like the world. And the recipe in doing that is very simple. If you want to live a Christian life and never be persecuted for righteousness' sake, the formula is simple. Approve of what the sinful world approves of, what is popular, what even makes sense emotionally. Never voice what you believe that there is a literal heaven, there is a literal hell, and that you believe the Bible is really the word of God, all of it, that Jesus is the only way, post whatever you want, like whatever you want on social media, never take a stand against sin in the world that is prevalent or a hot button issue, whether it be abortion or racism, never voice that the covenant of marriage is reserved for male and female, don't ever have conversations about your faith, and if you do this, you will have an easy life, an easy life, but it is hardly Christian. It is, can hardly be called Christian. But if we want to follow Jesus, friends, there will be a cost, there will be a price, and if you follow Jesus, it affects your entire life. It affects your marriage. It affects your parenting. It affects your relationships with your family, your coworkers. It even affects what you do for a living. About 100 years after this beatitude was written, there was an early church father named Tertullian, and he was a Christian. And there was a man who knew he was a Christian, and this man had a business, but his business was in direct conflict with his faith. And he comes up to Tertullian and starts explaining the situation. And he says, I don't know what to do. I must live, mustn't I? And Tertullian says, Tertullian said two words to him. He just looks at him and says, must you? <laughs> Imagine getting rebuked by that man. Must you? What's he saying? He's saying what the early church knew, 
that loyalty to Jesus is more valuable than life itself. And we must know that as well because there are many, 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 thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians who know that as well. Why this was so convicting for me is that there is a propensity in my life to want to be approved by everybody, to be liked. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says it best in his commentary. I'm not even going to dialogue about this because he says it so well. He says, and yet is not our idea of what we call the perfect Christian nearly always that he is a nice, popular man who never offends anybody and so easy to get on with? But if this beatitude is true, that is not the real Christian because the real Christian is a man who is not praised by everybody. They did not praise our Lord and they will never praise the man who is like him. Friends, this is a call for us to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to be okay when people may not like us. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why can we rejoice? Why can we rejoice? Is it because we're in line with the prophets? That's good, but the reward is God himself. Every missionary or persecuted Christian has said that during the times of imprisonment or other types of persecution, Jesus ministered and gave himself to them in droves. Samuel Rutherford, the guy I quoted, said when he was in prison for his faith, I learned more about Jesus spending six months in prison than I ever did 10 years of ministry. There is a way that Jesus gives us more of himself when we are undergoing opposition and persecution. But it's also because of heaven. He says it right here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Heaven puts our faith and our ability to follow Jesus in HD. We become more cognizant of his presence and power in our lives. Take, exam- take for example, the Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. What does it say about Moses and all of the people in Hebrews 11? It says that they were looking to the city who has foundations, whose maker is God. Heaven has a way of allowing us to understand, friends, that everything that you and I ever wanted, if we are in Christ, all joys won't match to being in the presence of Jesus. All pain that we have suffered, he will make it right. Everything that you ever want in this life is found in Jesus. Um, let me end with this. One of my friends, good friends, reminded me of a C.S. Lewis quote that he says in The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis, after three years of marriage, loses his wife to cancer. And in his book, he says this, our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, I-N-N-S, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. In this life, there are great things. Marriage, family, children, church, jobs, vacations. There is a lot of great things, but they're ends. They're not home. Persecution has a way of reminding us of that, reminding us where is our home? Is our home here? If our home is really here, if, if this is all that life has for us, then persecution negates that, and it destroys our life. But if God is himself our home, then persecution just has a way of reminding us of that. Because persecution will never take away the love of Jesus if you're in the kingdom. It will only show you that you have it. So, as I end the Beatitudes, let's look at this, the Beatitudes. 
What is the character quality of a Christian? Blessed are the poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the character quality of Jesus, and it should be the character quality of us. I pray that that is so in my life and in yours. Let's pray. God, we do, Lord, we do, uh, when we come across a passage like this, it is convicting for me, and I would imagine for some others in this room. God, help us to love our neighbors. Help us uh, to have compassion like you had compassion on people. And help us to turn the other cheek when we are reviled and cursed at and when people accuse us falsely on behalf of Jesus. God, help us to love you more. Help us to be okay with persecution and to say that this is a mark of your reality and your work in our life. God, help us to love you more. God, the blazing reason and the blazing fire that helps us endure persecution is that you have loved us when yet we were still sinners and that you call us to love those around us. Help us to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.